The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Our guest today, Sarah Bowen, is an animal chaplain, academic dean at One Spirit Interfaith Seminary, and columnist for Spirituality and Health magazine. She's also the author of several books, Void If Detached, Seeking Modern Spirituality Through My Father's Old Sermons, Spiritual Rebel, A Positively Addictive Guide to Deeper Perspective and Higher Purpose, and her new book, Sacred Sendoffs, An Animal Chaplain's Advice for Surviving Animal Loss, Making Meaning and healing the planet. Her essay, Becoming Moonimals, appeared in the September-October issue of Spirituality Health magazine. Sarah Bowen, welcome back. We've talked before on this podcast. Welcome back to the Spirituality and Health podcast. So grateful to be back and to chat more with you, Rami. Well, I'm always happy to talk with you because you love animals. I do, and I know you do as well, so I can't wait to see where this goes. I don't love all animals. I love I, I love the four-legged ones. I love I love apes. It's the human animal that that really I find really <laughs> challenging. But we're gonna put that aside and and talk about what's in your book. But I think we have to start with the notion of an animal chaplain. I'm sure people listening going, What is an animal chaplain? I mentioned it to someone this morning. And she imagined that you went and sat at the bedside of animals who were in the, you know, within the vets or something, and and you were you were talking to them. So is that what you do? Well, you know, I do spend some time doing that. That's one of the pieces of things I do is work with animals when they are transitioning and working with the humans who love the animals who are transitioning. So she's not far off. That is one piece of the work that I do. Another thing that I do is work with people while their animals are not sick or ill or dying on how to increase the human-animal bond, how to work with interspecies spirituality, and how to increase mindfulness for all that are involved. And then, of course, I do a lot of advocacy, a lot of... um, working with removing suffering and oppression for the more-than-human world. And I'm also clergy at the world's first interfaith, interspiritual, and interspecies church. So I get around. Okay. So I was going to hold off the interspecies stuff till a little bit later, but now I have to know. 
How does the church work? <laughs> so like many uh, spiritual groups right now, we're, we are meeting on Zoom, but we meet the fourth Sunday of every month. And we have a liturgy and a service, and we incorporate conversations about other than humans. We also do spiritual practices with other than humans. We've chanted uh, shalom with sheep. We've done mindfulness meditation with goats. We do all sorts. Uh, this last week, we did a slow meditation with a slug. <laughs> we did to try to get ourselves to slow down. So we had a video for about three minutes of a slug. We tuned into our breath. We watched the slug, noticed what was going on in our body, what was going on in their body, a being we don't normally pay much attention to, right? We also have interviews with people about animal theology, animal spirituality, and we do a little dancing and a little prayer and things that you would find in, in any kind of spiritual community. Well, that sounds amazing. I could just, you know, do you ever have guest speakers from like dogs or? <laughs> well, we did have a rooster about three weeks ago. Oh, great. So Where's Bree the Rescue Rooster and her human Camille came. So, you know, the idea really is that in a lot of spiritual spaces, more than human animals have been left out. Yeah. We're trying to figure out ways to bring them in because they're in our sacred texts. They're in our songs. They're in psalms. They're in prayers. But we've kind of marginalized them and pushed them out. So we're really working to bring them front and center. And it's really a practice of humility, too, because you never know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Uh, that might, It's like when Carson, Johnny Carson, used to bring you know the animals onto the show, and you never know what to expect from animals. But you really never know what to expect from people either, sadly. But it just, it sounds really wonderful. There's a book in the Jewish tradition called Perak Shira. It means chapter of song. And it's an, a collection of the mantra that animals recite. And What a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. It, 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 is, yeah. it turns out, luckily for the English reader or the Hebrew reader, it turns out that the animals all do mantra from the book of Psalms. So you can, you can, you know, look up, I don't, I can see the book on my shelf, but I can't reach it from where I'm sitting, but you could, you know, look up the deer and the deer says something from Psalm, whatever it is. And the idea is if you can learn the, the Hebrew of the Psalm, the line that they use, you can recite that to them and they are, they will resonate because you're using the same, the same mantra. So let, let's move on from interspecies church and, and talk about interspecies in a more, I don't know, maybe political vein. On your website, you define animal chaplain as someone who supports all sentient beings, regardless of species or belief system. And just a couple of weeks ago, the government of the United Kingdom declared lobsters, crabs, octopuses, or is it octopi? I don't know. Octopuses, squids, cuttlefish, crabs, lobsters, and shrimp as sentient. Yeah. We're right. reading our news in the same place, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. It was fascinating. Th this has not hit the U.S. yet, as far as I know. But declaring them sentient makes them, protects them under the U.K.'s animal welfare bill. And it's considered a huge step forward in animal welfare because it expands the bill to include invertebrates as well as vertebrates. So 
how, you know, all sanctioned beings, where's, is there a limit? For me, there's not. (laughs) So uh, recalling that slug again, but the idea of sentience is, you know, really the line that's being drawn right now. And it's really fascinating to see where that, where that line happens, because it used to be about pain. So the idea was, you know, Descartes said that, you know, animals don't feel, you don't need to worry about it. We can do whatever we want to for them. You know, they're, they're here for our use. And little by little, that's gotten chipped away by ethologists and by different folks who are really looking at animal lives and trying to look at them from an animal perspective beyond just we shouldn't hurt other folks. So this idea of sentience has really taken hold. And, and, and actually, in the United States, we do have some work going on as well, where recently a U.S. court recognized animals as legal persons for the very first time. This was just about a month ago in a court case about 100 hippos who are actually living in Colombia. So it's a really kind of complex case. But we're seeing that type of conversation happening here. There's also the legal work that's being done on behalf of Happy the Elephant in the Bronx Zoo by the Non-Human Rights Project. In the world, we have rivers now that have legal rights in South America, in India. So I think there's. I think you're right to to raise this as an important question at the beginning of our conversation, because that idea of who do we need to extend moral compassion to is getting wider and wider. Now that varies for everyone, and as you said when we first started, Rami, love some animals, others not so much, and that's that's normally the case for people. As an animal chaplain. I strive to have compassion for every single critter, even the mosquitoes that buzz around my ears. Yeah, I, I, I think that is fantastic that you can do that. I have, I have less compassion for mosquitoes buzzing around my ears, and I will. It's messy, and it's hard, and it challenges me greatly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm not being holier than thou about that. It really is a quandary when the ants move into your pantry or the wasps move into the eaves of your house. Yeah, you know, well, you know, the ants is an interesting thing. We had Matthew Ricard on the show months and months ago. He wrote a book on the Tibetan Buddhist approach to alleviating animal suffering. And we had this little bit of a conversation about ants. And through his eyes, I got to see that ants, he was using this, I think, model, model, and he said that, you know, an ant senses that you're going to kill it and it, it suffers. Now, you could also say that sanctions, I think. That's what I would say. But, and, but seeing it through his eyes, I stopped killing the ants in the pantry. I found other ways to get them out. But mosquitoes... I hit them so fast, I don't even know I'm doing it. You know, it's just a reflex. So the Dalai Lama has a story about mosquitoes that I think you would love. When he was asked, what do you do? He said, the first time the mosquito comes, perhaps I give it a little blood. The second time the mosquito comes, I may blow on him gently to get him to go away. The third time, and then he flicks at his arm. So even the Dalai Lama uh, will, will acknowledge that, you know, living in an interspecies world is really messy and there's a lot of questions it brings up. So it's, it's great to open a space like we are here to have that conversation. I think it really opens the human mind to realize that other beings are sentient. 
And and not just, I mean, you know, it's in, in a sense, I think it's easy for lots of people, at least for for myself. If I if the animal has a face, I you know, and I can look at it into its eyes like a dog or a cat or a horse or something, you know, a hippo, I assume there's sanctions there. But when they talked about the invertebrate animals, that is is just huge from a human point of view, because it's it's I mean, I'm a uh, I guess you say I'm a, I'm a panpsychist, meaning I think everything is is mind is, is you know yeah. has has sanctions, and so so having the the government recognize that helps and and doing the work that you do in the church that we we're just talking about helps people realize that sanctions isn't limited to humans or those animals that humans love or no it's it's not and you know one of the interesting statistics i like to throw around is that only 0.01% of life on this planet is human 99.99% of life is other than human and really, and i think that's something that should give us pause it should also yeah give us pause and and then just shock us look at the damage we've done and we're such a small part of the population it it is, and that's you know that's one of the things that I do in my work, and that we're also doing at the Compassion Consortium is really trying to you know how do you how do you show this entanglement of what our daily actions do with what happens with the planet, and then with other issues like food insecurity, like pollution, climate change, racism, poverty, environmental racism. You know, all of these different things are are really entangled because we've allowed ourselves to let animals be treated in ways that, that really are just, just horrible as long as we don't see it. And right. so I think that, you know, raising our awareness to the suffering and the sentience both is important because the suffering uh, really hits us on that, that moral level of, you know, how are, how are we treating others? And the sentience, you know, we value people or or people of other of other species who are more like us and the more that we learn uh, about animals being more like us and having the capacity for tools and for thoughts and recognizing themselves in mirrors and doing very very crafty things and sheep can recognize up to 62 faces and remember them and you know these kind of statistics can open our hearts to not seeing animals as things that should be exploited or used merely as products yeah Beings that should be befriended. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. which brings me to something in your book that that I was very interested in. Uh, it's probably I'm going to have to ask you to simplify it for me and anyone else who needs the, the help with it. But you talk about the work of James Harrod, who is the director of the Center for Research on the Origin of Art and Religion. And Taya Brooks Preback, who's the author of Enter the Animals, Cross-Species Perspectives on Grief and Spirituality. So Preback promotes this cross-species spirituality, and Harrod advocates for something he calls trans-species religion. And how do, how do you understand those? What's the difference? Well, you know, there's a chronology here. So it started with Jane Goodall, and she did work that a lot of us are f- familiar with. 
and and in her recent book talks about it too, but the idea of watching chimpanzees and the different states that they have and the different things that are kind of contemplative or, or meditative or might be spiritual. And so what Herod did was he looked at Goodall's work and the work of other people who were working with chimps and started to say, you know, I see things here that are the same basis that we see in religion. So I see reverence. I see awe. I see gazing. I see groups that are um, communing with each other in intimacy. I see things that I see at the basis of the religions. So what he wanted to do was say, let's, let's take the words out. Let's take the things that are only human out of religion and create something called transspecies religion. And building on that, Taya Brooks Preback said, all right, but let's also look at types of spirituality, not just religion. So Herod was very much talking about religion, and Brooks Preback is a little later, so she starts talking much more about spirituality and says, we have two different kinds of spirituality. One is intentional and one is unintentional. And so intentional spirituality is when we sit down to meditate or pray or daven or whatever our practice is. But unintentional are those moments where you feel that deep, deep connection, that moment where you have the God wink or you hit the innermost self or whatever your language is in your tradition, right? That, that moment that uh, the mystics try to put words to and explain for us, the experience of spirituality rather than the beliefs or the conversations about it. And so looking at those kind of things, you know, you start to build a platform for what we now call or what, what we call the Compassion Consortium interspecies spirituality, which is if we can recognize that all animals or many animals have the capacity for these things, what would we gain if we did it with them? What happens when you do mindfulness practices with another species? Is there something that happens? And, and I have seen there's, there's some magic that happens there. Yeah, I, you know, I I do my meditation. Oftentimes, I do my meditation in a chair, and so there's a a back that is shoulder height, and it's stuffed, so it's it's not like a, a hard chair. And my dog will climb up on my shoulders, drape herself around me like a shawl, and just sit. And I, I'm not. I, I'm going to say she's meditating with me. I'm that's I'm projecting. But there is, I don't know, I get this deep sense of I don't know, relaxation with her over my shoulders. This, it, just, it deepens the whole process for me. And we wow. would say, and, and Herod probably, and Brooks Preback probably as well, but I would definitely say that you're not projecting. Because what we've seen in scientific studies is that the part of the brain that is activated during mystical experience is a part of the brain that dogs, cats, horses, chimps, bonobos also have. So they have the same brain structure, the same capacity for having moments of peacefulness or stillness or tuning in. Now, we put a word on it. We call it meditation. We write rules about it. We write books about it. But at the essence of it, that moment of being really just tuned in, your dog probably is. So is that projecting? Well, not, good question. You, well, I'd like to think it isn't. So that, that's very helpful. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other thing, 
Rami, that you're mentioning here. You know, I hear a lot of people, I, I teach at One Spirit Interface Seminary, and, you know, a lot of people come in and say, you know, I really, really, my spirituality is in nature. I feel really in touch with, you know, the universe or my higher power when I'm in nature. And one of the things I try to challenge people to do is say, why are we calling it nature? What happens if we get more specific? You know, today I meditated next to a woodpecker. Or today, while I was doing yoga practice, a rabbit showed up. Or what if we were more specific about the beings that are actually in the spaces we are, rather than kind of amalgamating them into this fantasy type of thing of nature? So that's something I'd say to our listeners today, too. Think about that. When is your connection to nature? Or might it be to the beings who live in nature? Because we do, too. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. part of that natural exactly. unfolding. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a great question to po- for people to pose to themselves. Let me let me switch gears a little bit and talk about something, I guess, personal and practical. That a lot of people, though, it's, it's I'm going to tell you a story that's personal to me, but a lot of people have had the same the same thing. A couple of years ago, my grandson Jack, he was four at the time. He was with us when our dog Murphy. We had to put her down. I hate to say put her to sleep, but you know, so whatever you want to, whatever, whatever the euphemism is for doing that. She had brain tumors. She had painful seizures. And when the doctor explained to me that she knew, I thought maybe she was unconscious when the seizures were happening. She wasn't in any kind of suffering. The, the vet said, no, I'm completely wrong that she knew some, she was horrified by what was happening to her. So, so we agreed that it was time to let her go. And my my son and daughter-in-law came and they brought their four-year-old who loved Murphy dearly. And we all sat together with the dog and the vet explained what was going to happen. And a couple of minutes into it, Jack got very agitated and said he had to leave the room. So his parents took him out. He was gone for maybe two minutes. And then he knocked on the door and came back and he said he needed to come back. So he sat on the floor holding Murphy and the doctor injected whatever they do. And he just held her lovingly and patted her until she died, until she died. And when it was clear that she had been dead for a few minutes, his dad said to him, he said, Jack, Murphy is gone. And Jack looked up at his father and said, what are you talking about? She's right here because he was holding her still. He didn't have a concept of death exactly. So how do you explain death of a pet or that's not a great word, but your animal companion. How do you explain that to a, a preschool or a little kid? Well, I think a first question is, why do we want to explain it? I think that's an interesting question. Well, um, let's start with that. Rather than ask them what their experience is, what might have happened if at that moment they had asked, what's going on for you right now? You know, what are you feeling? What are you experiencing what is it like to hold Murphy right now? What does Murphy feel like? What do you remember about Murphy? Right. So to turn it back to rather than to try to, you know, we love finality. We want to know where we go. We want to know who has a soul and where they go and what happens. And we don't know. We don't have any idea. So, you know, the being able to look at death as a transition, you know, is is helpful, but to ask people what their experience is rather than to try to tell them what just happened. I think that's the first thing. I think another thing, you know, there's an entire chapter in in Sacred Sendoffs on this question you're asking. 
And what what do we do to take care of animal spirits? What do we take care of animal bodies? You know, how do how do we deal with this? So it's hard to crash this all down in 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 a couple minutes here. But I think that we have taken the spiritual piece out of death in many ways for animals. It's incredibly clinical. Yet we know 89% of people consider themselves spiritual. So we need to bring that in. So bringing in a, a poem or a song or something, a, a ritual to do at that moment, that's a lot of uh, what's in the book for, of Sacred Sendoffs. What do we do at that moment to help that being you know, leave this experience and go to whatever that experience is. I, I like to call it the what's next. I don't have any idea what's next, but I do feel like if I'm going to it, I would like that experience to be peaceful. I'd like to be surrounded by people who love me. I'd like them to be taking care of themselves too. And so I think those are things that we can do in that moment. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. That's not uh, a perfect answer, but, no, you know, no, I, I, a very, a very helpful answer. I wish I had thought to do that when, you know, when the situation was, was actually happening, ask him what he thought about what was going on rather than, you know, his dad trying to explain to him what was happening. Well, it's natural. We want to explain away the discomfort. And it's the same thing that happens when, when people grieve. There's really interesting research. 93% of people who have a pet loss have disruption in their lives. 93%. And for at least 50%, it's, it's big enough that it's job-related, that it's anxiety, worry, depression. It really affects their lives. And yet what they often hear is, it's a dog. Go get a new one. You'll get over it. You know, time will heal all wounds, all of these types of things. And so we as a, you know, kind of interspecies world, 67% of our homes have animals that live with us. We need to get smarter about how to handle animal loss because it's going to happen. Our lifespans tend to be longer than theirs are. We need to prepare for it. We need to know what to do at that moment. We need to deal with our anxiety about what happens when they leave and how we handle it. And we need to know how to revere them in the moment and afterwards, just like we do for humans. So, you know, the, the death positivity movement has, has really taken hold with humans. I really want it to take hold with other than humans as well. Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes complete sense. One of the things that I, I got from the book or, or one of the challenges, it seemed to me, that you might face after having read your book, that you might face in the various contexts in which you bring this, these ideas, is the book has a distinct Christian tone to it. At least that's how I, I read it. You know, I mean, I personally, I'm a non-dualist. I'm a panentheist. I believe that all life is the incarnation of a single aliveness. You know, you can call it God or nature or mother or Brahman, whatever you want to call it. And like we said at the very beginning, for me, animals are uh, sanctioned and sacred. 
But in the Christian tradition, as I understand it, and I'm not a Christian, so I could be wrong. You can please correct me if I am. But in the Christian tradition, animals don't have souls. And you see this too in, in Orthodox Judaism and, and uh, animals just, they have some kind of sanctions, but they don't have souls the way humans have souls. Now, I'm not a big believer in soul because that sounds very dualistic to me, but leave that uh, as it may without getting into what I think. Do you, are you confronted? Do you find challenges going to churches and talking about this when the, the, the tradition itself, in this case, Christianity, doesn't really align with this notion of, of an ensouled being, being an animal? So I want to start by saying two things. Um, one is that I am interfaith, so my beliefs are going to come from a lot of different places and make a big mess, as opposed to be uh, strictly a Christian approach. But why I address what Christianity says about animals is just because that idea of dominion and the idea of soul has become so pervasive within our society, especially in in Western society. That it's got to be tackled. So we, you know, to not speak of it is to is to not speak of the elephant in the room. To use a an animal metaphor, and so within the book, I try to use the idea of a couple of different Jesus's teachings, which we can read in ways which are animal positive, which are concerned for animals. Um, the idea that animals are soulless is primarily a Catholic idea. We have to remember that Christi- Christians, uh, Christianity is not a monolith, right? There are, there are so many different versions of Christianity with different beliefs, and there are a lot of Christians who would talk to you about the soul of animals. So, yeah, I, I, you kind of started a messy question. I kind of gave you a messy answer, but I, I think the reason that that why I address it is because it's prevalent. The idea that animals are here for us to use, when you ask people, why? Why, why do you believe that? It somehow makes its way back to Genesis. Yeah. So we need to address it. And if we really look at the Christian New Testament, there are these Beautiful, beautiful stories that have been read in certain ways about animals that can also be read in ways that Jesus had concern for other beings. You know, he talks about wanting to free the oppressed. He talks about wanting to bring sight to those who can't see. And he doesn't say humans in there. You know, he he does all sorts of different things. And 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 I detail those in the book, not because I think people should necessarily need to use Christian ethics in their decision making. But to show that's where a lot of uh, what we've inherited as a culture has. Then I broaden to look at, you know, the idea of treating your neighbor as yourself is prevalent in almost every tradition. So, you know, hopefully people of any belief system or no belief system at all, atheists, agnostics, come one, come all, you know, there's a lot to look at in here. So I hope that it will have people question whatever they were raised with to believe about animals, regardless of, of what tradition you were raised in, or if you were not raised in a tradition at all. Right. I, I Does that answer that. it at all? That, no, that answers the question. I, I yeah. think it also addresses, at least the way I heard, you, I heard what you were saying, we live in a predominantly Christian country where the 
trope of, and, and I recognize Christianity isn't one thing, but but biblical tropes pervade every aspect of our lives. Yeah. And this notion of, you know, in Genesis 1, this notion of dominion, where animals are to be, not, you know, there's people argue about what the word means in Hebrew, but yeah. people <laughs> interpret it to mean that they're, they're ours to use, like, you know, trees and rocks and, you know, whatever else we use, because to be, their resources to be exploited. That is one version of, a, that's one creation story. In Genesis 2, you get one where it's the exact opposite, that people are created, and the, the Hebrew says, to uh, protect and to serve. And the word serve, with regard to nature and animals, the word serve is the same word that's used in, in, in Hebrew when you talk about worship, that there's a sacredness that we're supposed to exhibit with these animals. So you get yeah. Chapter one, which is goes one way, chapter two goes the other. Our culture is more chapter Genesis one oriented. We need to shift to Genesis two. Totally. Then, yeah. Then just one last point, because you brought up Genesis and my little rabbi mind is racing with <laughs> quotes. So <laughs> in, in the twelfth chapter of Genesis, verse three, it says that we're supposed to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And apropos to what you said a minute ago about loving your neighbor, it doesn't say your human neighbor to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, it doesn't limit it to human families at all. In fact, adding the word all before family suggests that it's, it's much broader than that. So yeah, I think, I think one of the things that uh, you're doing, and, and I try to do this in my own way, though I don't, I'm not an animal chaplain, is to challenge these biblical tropes and to say, look, there's more to the Bible than this uh, anthropomorphic, human-centered, you know, worldview. Absolutely. And we find it in all the traditions too. We find these these ways that sacred texts are used to support animals. And then we find ways that they're used to exploit animals across the board. Yeah. And, you know, this idea also of sacrifice, which is one of one of the comments I usually, you know, get up on a little soapbox about, but the idea that somehow that animals are sacrificing themselves for you know, we find that a lot. We find that in in a lot of prayers. We find that in, um, and we just find it across the board. And I really want people to to challenge that idea too. I don't think that animals are making that choice to sacrifice themselves for us, and clearly not in the numbers which we are taking them. If we look at factory farming, if we look at aquaculture, if we look at lab animals, all of the things we don't want to look at. And so what I'm hoping that I'm doing in this book and through the work that I'm doing and what we're doing at Compassion Consortium is helping people gently open their eyes and ask a lot of questions, not to suggest how we should be doing things, but that we need to, we need to step back a little bit and see what has developed, what's been hidden from us, and, and are we okay with it? And if we're not, how do we get involved in whatever our tradition is or in whatever our practices are? To make change. Absolutely. I, I think the idea of helping people question is really a, a good way to go about this as, as opposed to the way I do it, which is just to harangue people. Well, I do that occasionally <laughs> too. <laughs> but I do think just like when we were talking about, you know, the the little boy at, at the at the dog's death, you know, asking people, what are you experiencing and what's happening for you? And when I tell you this story about something that's going on with an animal, you know, I talk a lot about roadkill. 
Uh, a million animals a day are killed by human motorists. Wow. 400 in the US alone, 400 million as compared to 100 humans. The human deaths are also horrible, but just the, you know, these unseen losses of wildlife and extinction. I just came back from Galapagos. I was learning a lot about that. How can we open our eyes to these things and and how can we be better neighbors and maybe help the planet out a little bit and, and you know, while we're doing that as well? Yeah, I mean, we're running out of time and I'm going to have to wrap this up, but I'm, you made me think of in Virginia, there's a place called Yogaville, which is mm. Swami Chidananda's yep. ashram. And on one visit, I was picked up at the train station and driven to Yogaville. And part of the road leading quite a number of miles, it seemed to me, leading into the ashram itself is a major turtle crossing. And we had to stop which is great. I mean, the, she, the driver was looking out. She knew these turtles were there. We stopped and waited for each of them to make its way across. It was just a sense of compassion for the turtle. And it was a great meditation exercise because you never knew when we would stop and have to just breathe and wait as the turtle made its way to wherever it was going. Yeah, it attunes us to life. Yeah. It attunes us, uh, it gets ourselves out of thinking that we are the center of the universe. Again, we're 0.01% of life on the planet. And we tend to behave like everything is here for us. So any of those practices we can do, what a beautiful, you know, people keep your eyes on the roads. Right. right. <laughs> Not on your phones. Oh. Keep them on the roads and allow space to let turtles and squirrels <laughs> and raccoons and other folks commute too. Right, right. Which sort of brings me to the way I want to end the podcast. You have this wonderful poem right at the end of the book that, I mean, I could read it and people would hear me do it. But if you read it, it's your poem. I think it'll be much more powerful. And that's the way I'd like to bring the conversation to a close. So if you have a copy of that with you, if you'd read that for us. I would love to. And thank you for this conversation, Rami. Ask everyone listening to take a deep breath. Tune into the space you are in and open your ears and hearts. May my presence be a blessing to all creatures. Blessed furriness walking on four legs, may you be sustained and flourish. Blessed feathered of the skies, may you be sustained and flourish. Blessed finned beings of the waters, may you be sustained and flourish. And blessed leafy ones rooted deep in the earth, may you be sustained and flourish. Glory be to the forests and to the deserts and to the holy seas. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. May I live in connection to the everlasting cycle of life. And when this body no longer can sustain me, may I be blessed with a sacred send-off. Our guest today, Sarah Bowen, is the author of Sacred Send-Offs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. You can learn more about Sarah's work at thisissarahbowen.com. 
You can read her recent article in Spirituality and Health magazine, the October, September, October issue. Her essay is entitled Becoming Moonimals. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with us on Spirituality and Health podcast. Thanks for having me and good luck meditating with your dog. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.